Lord, what an amazing encounter we hear about today. The seventh and final of your greatest miracles as you ministered among us. The culmination of your earthly ministry as John testifies to this miracle before the last week of your life on earth. Lord, I ask that you would continue to stir among us this morning with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see you and to know you, to respond to you, and to enjoy life in your name. Come, Holy Spirit. Do a miracle in our hearts this morning, beginning with me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's grab a seat. Big story, long story. In fact, the longest encounter that Jesus has as recorded by the Apostle John. And what we see here is crisis and tragedy. At least that's how it begins. It begins with a crisis and a tragedy that hits close to home. And it feels like the ground has shifted and time slows down and the regular rhythms and routines of life give way to distress. This is the setting of the gospel lesson this morning. We encounter a family in crisis and in distress. And I want to encourage you to open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 11. In your blue Bible, that's on page 897 and 898. It's so long it takes two pages. This morning we come to the family of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are brother and sisters. They're close to one another and they're close to Jesus. In fact, it can be said that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are Jesus' best and dearest friends. Throughout Jesus' ministry, their home is always open to him. They're devoted to him. They're dedicated to his mission and his ministry. And they support and care for him in so many ways. They support and care for him, especially personally. They cook for him. Uh, They provide a place for him to stay and rest and teach. There's a lot that goes on in the Gospels around this family's home. And Lazarus and Mary and Martha don't just provide for the needs and care for Jesus. They also provide for the needs and care for the disciples too. This is an amazing family. And it's really a wonderful picture of what gospel community is all about. Here we we see illustrated this relational intimacy that happens when we follow and serve Jesus together. There's this incredible bond that happens between us when we open our homes to Jesus and provide a meal and share our lives with one another and with others who want to know and follow Jesus with us. I think it raises a, a great question 
for me this week that I've been contemplating, and I want to raise that question with you. What would it look like for you to continue to open your heart and open your home and practice more than ever before Jesus-centered hospitality? Because connecting with Jesus as we connect with one another and as we reach out to those who are disconnected is an absolutely vital practice of gospel community. And that's who we are, a gospel community. So I want to encourage you to think about that and pray about that. What would that look like for you as we move to the end of the summer and as we think about beginning a new season of life and ministry together in the fall? Well, here we see this amazing family in the midst of crisis. Crisis and tragedy comes to this house. Lazarus gets sick, and not just a little sick, he gets really sick. But in their crisis, and in their distress, what do they do? Who do they they turn to? They know Jesus. And Jesus knows them. So when crisis comes, Jesus is the first person they call. Man, I wish I was like that. That was really convicting to me. Sadly, the illness works fast. And by the time word gets to Jesus, Lazarus is already dead. The dear brother of Martha and Mary, one of Jesus' best friends dies. And for Martha and Mary, the ground shifts. Time seems to stop and their regular rhythms and daily routines give way to grief. But not for Jesus. Jesus has this uncanny sense of confidence. Did you hear it in the reading of the gospel? Good job, David. What does Jesus know that they don't know yet? Well, Jesus tells them. We see it in verse 4 and again in verse 15. Lazarus' death will be the occasion by which Jesus demonstrates his glory. Hmm. So the ground doesn't shift for Jesus. Time doesn't slow down for Jesus. He actually stays the course and continues his ministry where he is for two more days. Is he ignoring the prayers of his friend? Is he ignoring their request, their plea for his help and presence? No. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is building an opportunity. He is creating the most teachable moment in his earthly ministry to date. He's waiting to do what only he can do. He's waiting for the right time to demonstrate his glory so that when he does, others may believe what? That he is the Messiah. Why? Because by believing that he is the Messiah, they may have life in his name. So, For Mary and Martha, it's an opportunity as well. But for them, it's the opportunity to trust. The opportunity to trust 
in Jesus. They can't control how Jesus will act. They can't dictate when Jesus will act. They must simply trust him and wait on his timing. What about you? When a crisis comes, when the ground shifts and your regular rhythms and routines give way to confusion and grief, is Jesus the first one that you turn to? Do you trust him above all else? Do you believe he knows what to do and when to act? Do you have faith that Jesus will always respond according to what he knows is best for you because he loves you and cares for you and he's committed to accomplish his good and perfect purposes in your life? Do you believe that? Have you learned what Mary and Martha learned to trust and wait on Jesus? That's hit close to home for me in the last two months. With Jason and Heather, who we love so much and have invested so much in, felt called to move back to New Braunfels and continue their healing process outside of ministry. When Brian gets called to his next season of life and ministry and steps off staff, my best friend, my ministry partner. When Britt gets sick and praise God gets healed, but still is recovering with our prayers and our support and our encouragement. When Jen goes through leadership intensive and gets coached right out of her job to another job and gets like the job of her lifetime. I'm so happy for her, sad for me, but really happy for her. But rather than give way to distress, I very much see this as an opportunity for me to trust in Jesus, for me to wait on Jesus, to show up and be glorified. I trust Jesus and I believe that he's at work in my life and in our life as we wait on him to accomplish his good and perfect purposes for us. And as I think about that, and as I, as I pray about that, and as I talk to you all about that, I, I believe that in this transition of current leaders, the Lord is honing and refining me as a leader. And I believe the Lord is raising up new leaders, some that will come on staff, most of whom won't be on staff because they're sitting to your left and to your right. They are you, the priesthood of believers. And I believe the Lord is calling all of us to step up and step out in ways that we've not yet done so. I believe the Lord is moving in our hearts and calling each of us this summer to take a new level of responsibility for the life and the health and the leadership and the provision of our spiritual family. I believe that's what God is building an opportunity for, to grow us up for the next wave of mission and ministry he's calling us into. How are you trusting and waiting on the Lord? How are you learning what Mary and Martha did? Whether you're trusting and waiting on the Lord about your health or uh, about your marriage, or maybe it's a child, or maybe it's something at work. It can be really challenging, can't it? And it's really hard to trust and wait on Jesus in isolation. So learn that, family. We need each other. But it can be really challenging, and it's really challenging because at least for me, I know it's for you too, our default and tendency 
is to control and attempt to fix the situation. And in doing so, imitating the sin of Eve. And our default and tendency is to become passive and shrink back and even give up. And in doing so, imitating the sin of Adam. And our default and tendency is to deny reality, to lie to yourself and to others and to try and fake it, imitating the sin of Satan. That's why trusting and waiting on the Lord can be really challenging, but also why it's so important to trust and obey in him above all else. Let's look at what Mary and Martha do. Starting with Martha, look at verses 17 through 27. An amazing response, an incredible example. When Jesus arrives at Bethany, he stays on the outskirts of town. Bethany's about two miles from Jerusalem. And apparently the crowd following him is so large in such a small town that it can't handle them all. So Jesus stays on the outskirts and sends a messenger to tell Martha that he's arrived. And as soon as Martha hears, she runs out to meet him immediately while it says that Mary stays at home. Martha is a woman of action and energy, and she brims with initiative, so she runs to Jesus. Mary is more contemplative and quiet. She remains at home. Someone's got to continue to care and minister to all the people there mourning for Lazarus. And so both Martha and Mary are beautiful women of God, fully devoted followers of Jesus, being alive in who they are. Now, just out of curiosity, will you raise your hand if you identify more with Martha? Martha, you're named Martha. I'm glad you're raising your hand. That's kind of cool. Okay, would you raise your hand if you identify more with Mary? Okay, about half and half. How cool is that? You, being who you are, is so important to our life and our spiritual family. It's just so important for you to be who you are. How has God wired you to love and serve and ministry? What gift or gifts has he given you to support and encourage all of us? Whether you're a person of action and energy brimming with initiative or whether you're more contemplative and quiet who cares and comforts behind the scenes, you have an active role to play in this family. And when you play your part, motivated by Jesus's love, This family will be whole and strong and you will experience incredible fulfillment walking in the good purposes that God has planned for you to walk in. Every disciple of Jesus is called to ministry. And that means everyone at Grace has a spiritual role and responsibility to play for Jesus and for one another. So again, As I have been contemplating this this week, I want to offer that for your contemplation and prayer. Will you think about, will you pray, will you talk to one another about how God is leading you into deeper devotion to Jesus by active service in his ministry among us in this summer and into the fall as we begin a new season of life and ministry together. But back to the text. 
what follows is an incredible conversation. This exchange between Jesus and Martha is so dynamic, and most of the time we just read right past it. And we miss so much because we have so much to learn from this exchange. Because what happens internally with Martha is something that happens internally with us as well. And I want us just to see how important this is because this is a great example of how living and active, authentic faith in Jesus works. Like this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the real deal right here. When Martha comes to Jesus, she's upset. But here's the thing. She doesn't put on a mask. She doesn't fake piety. She has an honest conversation with him. Look at verse 21. Martha says pointedly, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can hear the cry of her heart. Jesus, why didn't you come when you were called? Why didn't you heal Lazarus after all that our family has done for you? After all we've given, after all we've sacrificed, after how much love and devotion we've shown you, why did you let our brother, your best friend, die? Can you hear her heart? But don't miss this. When Martha is honest about her hurt and confusion and frustration, when she expresses this out loud in the presence of Jesus, something wonderful happens. As she talks with Jesus, as she prays to Jesus, she grows in faith. She is changed from the inside out. And we don't know how long the conversation really lasts, but we know that in relationship with Jesus, Martha finally comes to a place of surrender. And ultimately she trusts Jesus and knows that he is in control because with real faith in verse 22, she blurts out, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. You know what that conversation with Jesus is like? Anybody like David Crowder? Yeah, I really like David Crowder. Personally, and as a musician. And um, one of my favorite songs that he sings is oftentimes the song that I listen to as I enter into my time of personal worship and devotion for the Lord. Have any of y'all heard the song that he sings, My Sweet Lord? The words and the music just bring my soul into the presence of the Lord. My sweet Lord, desperately, I am alone and afraid to be. My love is gone so far away. I need my sweet Lord's help today. So let your love shine down on me and light the way for me to be. These are the words that I pray. I need my sweet Lord's help 
today. You're welcome for not singing that to you. (laughs) Look at verse 23. At the climax of their conversation, Jesus responds to Martha with a striking declaration. Do you see it? Your brother will rise again. Wow. Jesus is clear. Lazarus will not stay dead. Lazarus will be resurrected and live. But Martha misunderstands. She believes in the resurrection from the dead. It's one of the fundamentals of the Jewish faith. It's also what Jesus had been teaching over and over and over again, that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But hearing what Jesus teaches and actually believing it are two different things, aren't they? Here's your tweet. Believing the facts about Jesus is not the same as having active living faith in Jesus. So Jesus clarifies it for her. Look at verses 25 and 26. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Do you hear that? Jesus doesn't say that he gives life and resurrection to people. Jesus says he is life and resurrection for people. Jesus declares that he is God. Again, using the name Jehovah. He declares that he is the very being and essence, the very energy and power of all life. He creates life. He sustains life. He restores life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so Jesus unpacks it. He promises two things. You see it there? First, Jesus promises, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. What's up with that? That means when a person who believes in Jesus dies, she goes to live in heaven in a real spiritual place where God and Christ and the heavenly host enjoy foreverness together. It's a new word. Let's bring it into existence. Foreverness. Jesus is saying that another world exists just as this world exists. And it's an incredible spiritual dimension where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all the angels and all those who have gone before us in Christ live together in eternal joy. That's what he's promising. And he's promising that whoever lives and believes in him will never die again. Just as we are born once physically, we must be born spiritually again. And just as we will die physically, we will be raised into the presence of heaven. The believer, therefore, will never taste eternal death. Quicker than we can blink an eye, we'll pass from this world into the next world and we'll be spiritually transported and transferred into the presence of God. One moment we'll be conscious and living in this world and the next moment we'll be conscious and presence in, in, present with God in heaven. And in our bodily resurrection, we will be made perfect, restored to the image and likeness of God, who is Jesus. 
completely restored to God's original design for us, regaining all that was lost with Adam's sin, wonderfully transformed and beautifully conformed to God's original design and purpose for us. Life, life in abundance, life to the full. We will become fully aware, fully knowledgeable, and fully alive to enjoy God and all his fullness in foreverness. That's what Jesus is promising. Do you feel that in your soul? Do you feel that welling up within you? That's the Holy Spirit giving you what we call the Christian hope. Faith is our confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what Jesus promises even when we don't see it. That's the Christian hope. And this is the transforming process that Martha experiences. And it's a transforming process that we can experience face to face with Jesus. Authentic faith in Jesus leads to hope and the sure and certain promise of the resurrection for the dead. Not just for Lazarus, but for you and me as well. We begin with a crisis or confusion or frustration, but as we talk it out with Jesus, as we come to him with honesty and humility, as we pray and trust in his word, as we depend not on our own understanding, but on him and his promises, we too grow in faith that leads to hope. And the faith and the hope leads to the love of God washing over us. And as a result, our encounter with Jesus can be like Martha, who makes one of the greatest declarations of faith in the entire scripture. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who was to come into the world. Jesus, you fulfill all the promises of life and salvation. That's authentic faith and hope in Jesus, no matter what our circumstances are. We yield and trust in the saving presence of our Messiah and King. It's such a beautiful story. And if I loved you a little, I'd stop there and do part two next week. But because I love you a lot, And because Brig gave me permission, I'm going to keep going. This is so real and so powerful and so important for us, Grace. Martha is so filled with faith and hope that she can't contain it. You ever felt that? She can't keep the love of Jesus to herself, the promise of Jesus to herself. So she hurries back and tells Mary... And I just wonder, for me, for us, what would it look like for us to draw so close to Jesus that we couldn't help but joyfully tell others about him all the time everywhere we went? It's not a duty. It's a response of our heart. 
It's not something that we make happen. It's something that is an overflow of what God has already done in our lives. Look at verses 28 through 37. In response to Martha's faith and hope, Mary jumps up and quickly runs to Jesus. And she goes through the same internal relational process as she comes face to face with Jesus. When Mary reaches him, she falls at his feet and she shares the raw and honest feelings of her heart. Look at verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you hear the distress, the anguish in her heart? Jesus, why didn't you come when you were called? Why didn't you heal Lazarus? After all that we've done for you, why'd you let my brother, your best friend, die? Why, Jesus? And Mary is so overwhelmed that she can't do anything else but just weep the living water of the Holy Spirit welling up within her, overflowing from her, bringing her comfort that's going to lead to faith and hope. Watch this. As Mary weeps, Jesus weeps. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Yet it is such an important verse that it deserves to stand alone. Underline it three times. Circle it. Highlight it. Because there's infinitely more in these two words than any preacher or student of the word could ever bring out in an entire lifetime. Jesus is so deeply moved. He cries. Yeah, he was born. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He ate. He got tired. He got thirsty. He slept, but Jesus wept. Mary and Jesus cry together, broken by sorrow, grieved by the horrible reality of death, weeping over their mutual loss, angry, not at one another, but at death. Here is Jesus' humanity on full display. Jesus felt as we feel. And it may be that Jesus could have come to earth and died for our sin without entering into the grief we experience, but he doesn't. Whatever our sorrow may be, Jesus knows what it's like. He understands the problem of pain. He sympathizes with us. He gets confusion and fear and doubt And he chooses to come and be with us so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need, no matter what the circumstance may be. Now, what other religion can claim such intimacy? None. No religion can. Only Jesus. God weeps with his people. And with you. Because you are his child. You can't make that stuff happen. God weeps with his people. And this should be great encouragement to our prayers. 
Because Jesus notices our tears. Jesus is touched and moved by our tears. And Jesus is able and desires to remove our tears forever. That's what this is about. Now, suppose for a minute that this story ends right here. Jesus wept. Or suppose we should read, Jesus wept and then returned to Jerusalem. That that wouldn't be much of a story. There'd be no comfort, no hope in that. And that's not what happens. Instead, we read that Jesus weeps and then he acts. He does something about it. Jesus gets up and goes to do what he came to do. Here is the moment that he's been building for four days now. It's come down to this. What will he do? Look at verses 38 through 46. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus to confront death and to demonstrate his supreme power over it. Do you see this? Jesus stands at the face of the tomb and he stares down the cave and with holy indignation, he stares down the stone that lays across the entrance and Jesus says, take away the stone. And the stone is rolled away. And the odor of death fills the air. And in the midst of the stench and the sadness and the suffering, Jesus looks to heaven and he prays. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around here that they may believe what? That you have sent me. Why? Because by believing that I am the Messiah, they will have life in my name. So this is what I'm about to do. See, Jesus knows the Father's heart. He knows why he has come. And he knows that it's more than just about Lazarus. It's, a, it's about a witness, a testimony that's going to reach all the way to us here today in San Antonio. So after giving all the glory to the Father, Jesus does something fascinating to me. He shouts. Facing the tomb, amplifying his power as Messiah, Son of God, the one who was sent into the world to save the world, Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. The one who is the visible image of the invisible God, the one who exists before anything was created, the one who is supreme over all creation and holds all creation together, shouts at Lazarus. And the volume of his voice matches the magnitude of his miracle. Lazarus! Come out! The shout stresses something really important. The power of Jesus is the power of God himself. It's the power to speak against the tyranny of sin. It's the power to shout down death itself. It's the power to recreate life and redeem it 
from all that was lost. And the shout is also personal. Jesus shouts the name of his friend. He doesn't just shout, come out. He shouts, Lazarus, come out. See, there's a relationship between them. There's a great knowing, a great concern, great compassion, and a great desire to be reunited. Lazarus, come out. Now, when the Son of God speaks your name and calls you forth from the grave, there is no way you can remain there. There is no power that can hold you down. There is no principality that can hold you back. When the Son of God speaks your name and calls you to rise up, rise up you will. And so immediately, obediently, perfectly, miraculously, visibly, just as he was all wrapped up in burial clothes, Lazarus takes a breath stands up and walks out of his tomb. And there he stands alive in the presence of the Savior. Martha and Mary and all those who were previously mourning now stand in awe. And all of their trusting and all of their waiting is consummated in the sure and certain hope of the promise and the reality of the resurrection from the dead. Because life is Jesus. And with great joy and with what I can imagine, a huge smile on Jesus' face, Jesus instructs them to unwrap the burial clothes from Lazarus. The old has gone, the new has come. Lazarus is alive. No sickness, no sorrow, no stench. I can only imagine the embrace, (laughs) the celebration, and the amazing feast that must have followed. So what's the point? In raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus demonstrates that our faith and our hope in him and his promises are not in vain. Those who believe in Jesus will live even though we die and whoever lives and believes in him will never die. Do you believe this? We need Jesus. We are so corrupted by sin, so unable to free ourselves from its devastating bondage that there is no hope for any of us unless Jesus comes to us and raises us. Everyone apart from Jesus is spiritually dead. That means you have no capacity to move toward Jesus, to woo him, convince him, When you're dead, there's no life in you. That's how it is for us spiritually. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, not mostly dead. We are dead, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And as such, there's nothing we can do to change or improve our desperately tragic spiritual condition. That's the scope of the entire counsel of God. Apart from Jesus, we are hopeless. Without Jesus, our problem of sin is unsolvable. And yet with Jesus, all things are possible, even new and eternal life. And so the resurrection of Lazarus 
is meant to increase our faith and instill the Christian hope solidly within us because the same thing that happens to Lazarus happens whenever Jesus speaks to a lost and fallen child of Adam and Eve and rebirths them, making them a child of God. Jesus comes, Jesus calls And the one who hears his voice and responds to his grace by faith rises up from the grave to meet him. Now, a day's coming when Jesus is going to stand at your grave. And he's going to stare down all the suffering and all the sadness and all the ravages of sin. And he's going to look up to heaven and he's going to explain, Father, this is for your glory. And Jesus is going to give a great shout. And the volume of his voice is going to match the magnitude of his miracle when he shouts your name. Acknowledging the personal relationship that exists between you. And it's going to be this incredible moment of great knowing and great compassion and great joy. Because when the Son of God speaks your name and calls you forth from death to life, there is no way that you can remain in your grave. No power or principality can hold you there. And so immediately, obediently, perfectly, miraculously, visibly, you will rise and you will live in foreverness. Jesus will redeem your life and restore you to all that was lost so that death itself dies. That's the Christian hope. That's the promise of Jesus you will be immediately, as in the blink of an eye, ushered into the glorious presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the great company of angels, and all those who have gone before us in faith in Christ. And there you will stand in the presence of your Savior, fully alive, the old completely gone, the new completely realized, and Jesus will turn your tears of sorrow into songs of joy. The great picture given later to John on an island of Pathos is this. Never again will you hunger. Never again will you thirst. The sun won't beat down upon you nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be your shepherd. He will lead you to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Imagine the embrace. Imagine the celebration. Imagine the great feast that's going to follow. Authentic faith based on the hope put in the promises of Jesus. Do you believe this? Let's pray. The collect from Resurrection Sunday. Almighty God, for our redemption, you gave your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to overcome death on the cross and open to us the gate of everlasting life through his glorious resurrection. Grant that we who celebrate with joy the life we have together in him may die daily to sin 
and continue experience the reality of resurrection power by the presence of your life-giving spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, who lives with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in glory everlasting. Amen.